Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant hate and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, let me start off this podcast by saying that uh, if you are the person on Twitter who very recently complained that I talk too much about protocols, not platforms, as a solution to various issues related to uh, big tech uh, when I am on this podcast, you may not want to keep listening, uh, though... Though, if you are that person, you also did say that you thought Cory Doctorow had a much better take on all of this and much better thoughts on this particular issue. So you might want to stick around uh, because he's here to pick apart my thoughts, at least. Uh, in actuality, uh, while I've reposted other podcasts I've been on where I've discussed protocols, not platforms, uh, it hasn't really been a, a focused topic of discussion on the actual Tector podcast. Uh, but we are going to talk about it today, along with some related ideas. And uh, specifically, uh, Daphne Keller, uh, who has been on the podcast before as well, and who directs the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, uh, reached out to me recently to say that we should do a podcast talking about these and related ideas. And in fact, Daphne has written uh, extensively about different approaches to platform regulation, uh, which is befitting considering her job title. <laughs> uh, and she has talked about the idea of magic APIs uh, as a possible solution. And meanwhile, Corey has written extensively about the idea of adversarial interoperability, uh, which I've been told is now being rebranded as competitive compatibility. And we can discuss that. <laughs> uh, but these three ideas of protocols, not platforms, magic APIs, and adversarial interoperability or competitive compatibility um, are all overlapping concepts in which I think we're mostly talking about the same basic approach, though perhaps coming at it with a uh, slightly different framing. Uh, and so the goal of this podcast was to have all three of us, Daphne, Corey, and myself, explore these ideas together to better see if we can parse out how they might work uh, in practice and I guess somewhat in theory. Uh, Daphne, since you were the one who suggested that the three of us do this, uh, saying that you had a lot more thoughts than you have time to write down, we will start with you. And that's what you get for volunteering. <laughs> so uh, do you want to just start by describing what you mean when you talk about magic APIs? Sure. So the the idea that I'm thinking of is broadly analogous to unbundling requirements in telecommunications. The idea is if one company is sitting on a resource that is very hard to duplicate or that would be inefficient or a bad idea to duplicate, um, for example, because uh, thanks to network effects, it makes sense to have just one of it. Um, then maybe you look at things like requiring the incumbents who sit on those resources to license them um, to, to newcomers. And so the, the version of this for today's platforms would be um, something like, and this will be a very crude approximation, but you know, something like Facebook has to allow um, competing providers to get access to the user content and user data that it's sitting on in order to offer uh, competing flavors of the content moderation rules or the algorithmic ranking or the UI design, um, you know, effectively come along and compete with Facebook in the content moderation space, drawing on the same um, resources that Facebook already holds of user data and um, content posted by users. Um, and as we'll get into later in the show, there are a lot of reasons why that is an oversimplification. <laughs> you know, there are huge <laughs> privacy questions. There are questions about how ad revenue works. But it's an idea that I think um, 
you know, it's time has come and it deserves really close attention from smart people to figure out if those privacy issues are resolvable um, or, you know, if the various other issues that it raises are, are resolvable be, because um, this idea, the protocols, not platforms or adversarial interoperability or magic APIs, which may not be exactly the same, but, the, you know, they're closely related. Uh, this idea solves a lot of problems at once. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> In no, principle. That's, 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 that's part of the theory. But that, that's interesting because I hadn't heard the framing before, uh, sort of comparing it to like telecom networks. And so, you know, for, for, um, for people who don't remember, for the, the youngsters listening to this, right, we, you know, we used to have with, with telecom internet access, we had sort of the open access system where, you know, when I was first getting on the internet, you had a million different um, ISPs that you could sign up for. And there were, you know, huge numbers of them. And, you know, for many years, I used a, a tiny ISP that was like a husband and wife team run out of somewhere in the middle of the country. I don't even know where, but they just supplied me with a whole bunch of phone numbers and, and I could dial into any of them. And what they were really doing was building on, on, a, you know, a network that was, you know, not owned by them, um, but they could build a service layer on top of the, the sort of infrastructure layer. So you're thinking about it as the same sort of thing. You would be, you know, people would be able to build a service on top of Facebook's sort of core infrastructure. The, that's right. And, you know, I should point out, this is a very top-down way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, by contrast to Corius, which is a very, very bottom-up way of thinking about it. You know, the, the idea... Um, of an unbundling requirement is a good fit if for people who, of the sort of platforms are utilities um, way of thinking. Um, but the way that you would enforce something that's analogous to telecoms unbundling is analogous to telecoms regulation. <laughs> you know, it involves right. lots of super arcane rules and lots of gaming and, you know, lots of potential problems. And, you know, that's one reason why in some ways it's much more interesting to think about it the way that Corey talks about, which mm -hmm. is forget having a regulator dictate how all of this works. Just take away the constraints that the government puts in place on new competitors coming along and just building something that's interoperable. Right. So let's move on to, to, to Corey. Is that a fair description of, of what you're talking about when you're saying inter, uh, adversarial interoperability? Yeah, I, I, I think that it's that 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 is a good, albeit um, somewhat incomplete account of, of where I come from. Um, so I, I do favor mandates uh, of the sort you're describing, but I fear that the trajectory of mandates is that they can be subverted by industries that have monopolistic power, right? So when we saw the mandates on long distance and interconnect and so on, you know, the, the history of AT&T is in fact replete with requirements to do cooperative things with smaller players that they were able to subvert. And, you know, the, the, when we see stuff like the access act, it tries to sidestep, or minimize the possibility of subversion of a mandate by by having what I call the dog food clause, which is the idea that you have to expose, like Facebook would have to expose the APIs that it uses on its back end to link, say, WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram to third parties. And the thinking goes that those APIs, because they're essential to Facebook's core business, will be really good and robust and full-featured and do all the things that you need to do. But I don't think that there's anything kind of written in stone that says that they have to be, right? Like you, you could imagine five years down the line, Facebook finds a way to interconnect those three services that just don't use the APIs, that use something else. And so the stuff that they're exposing becomes gradually less useful and the stuff uh, that they hide becomes more useful and, and um, less pro-competitive. And so the idea here with, with competitive compatibility is to both put a, a ceiling on top of interoperability, where mandates would be the floor, uh, adversarial interoperability or competitive compatibility would be the ceiling. So it's like, you know, this is the stuff that the companies must do. And then here's all the stuff that you can try to do, right? You can, you can do anything that you want to try and make an interoperable service even if it angers the company you're trying to interoperate with, provided you don't violate some law that has a purpose other than blocking interoperability. 
Um, so, so this is where a thing like a federal privacy statute becomes really important. Um, if you look at the Access Act, they, they try to kind of backform a federal privacy statute by saying you can have interoperability with Facebook and other dominant platforms, but you can't do anything bad for privacy. And here we're going to define what's bad for privacy and have these fiduciaries that know what's bad for privacy and so on. And really, they're just making a federal privacy um, act out of like whole cloth there. And it's going to be partial and incomplete. And we'll see with other mandates, we'll see other versions of it. And it'll be incoherent and overlapping and and cranky and not great and so we just need a we need a like if there's a thing we don't want interoperators to do we should make it illegal for everyone to do them including dominant platforms um and then we can always tell if your interoperability is illegitimate so so you have this idea that there's a floor under interoperability which is the mandate you have a ceiling on top of interoperability which is competitive compatibility the the uh, a a defense uh in law against all claims under all laws, provided that you are, um, uh, you know, adding features, adapt, uh, adaptations, um, competitive, pro-competitive activity, uh, service, security audits, or whatever, uh, on behalf of bona fide users, and and not only is that a ceiling, but it also changes the changes the equilibrium. Because companies would rather not have wildcat interoperability. If you're Facebook. As between having interoperability managed through a bunch of APIs that are defined and standardized and that, like, the law defines and so on, and just having, like, randos writing bots that power services that might grow really quickly to millions and millions of users, that will be your users and their users who will get really angry if you shut down the bots, Facebook would really much prefer to just have that managed process. And so the idea of, of, of competitive compatibility is not just that it's like an escape valve. It's also uh, um, like it's, it's like minatory. It, it's, it sits there and says there are consequences, not legal consequences, but like marketplace consequences, operational consequences, if you try to subvert the intent of uh, an interoperability mandate. And so that's kind of that. That's my that's my big brain moment. Right. It's like it's both a ceiling and a and a minotaur and it does both of those things at once hmm. and and so um I, i'm to some extent i'm still trying to wrap my head around um you know one of the, the the things that you said in there was that it would act as a defense so is the idea that that literally in in court you could mm-hmm. raise that as a as a defense to any sort of thing that is um you know if you're sued for for something you could say you know, based on breaking any particular law, you could say, no, I did this for the sake of, of interoperability or compatibility. So that's kind of the platonic version, right? Okay. That, that you would have an interoperator's defense passed by Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, you might also get it as a remedy for um, antitrust, right? So there might be a, you know, we have, we have all these DOJ lawsuits, we've got a bunch of state lawsuits. The settlement might be you are um, you are not allowed to invoke a, a a law solely for the purpose of blocking interoperability. It has to be in, in the same way that we sometimes talk about tying DMC twelve hundred one to an act of copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. You will have to tie a claim about copyright, copy, uh, um, anti circumvention, violating terms of service. Um, trade secrecy or, or non-compete violations, violating binding arbitration clauses, whatever, you will have to tie that to another statute that describes a harm to users, not to your shareholders. Uh, and if you can't do that, then you have to sit this one out. Then you just have to tolerate it. You can come up with all the technical countermeasures you want. You can play cat and mouse with with you know some startup that's trying to eat your lunch but what you can't do the same way that like microsoft could have altered the microsoft office formats after iwork suite came out to block pages and uh keynote and and calc from working with excel and powerpoint and word but what you can't do is like sue apple for patent or copyright infringement just for making an interoperable product and and so you know we might see it through statute we might see it through remedies it could also be a procurement guideline I, the more i think about mm-hmm. it the more this feels like just a prudent procurement policy where where we would say uh to anyone spending public money that like your vendors just have to promise that they will only shut down interoperators when they harm users and and not when they harm their shareholders 
uh, and you know you can do whatever you want out there and gul gulch where you're just operating in the free market, but we as customers of yours spending the public money will prudently insist that you uh, not do things that um, would uh, limit the utility of the thing we are procuring from you. And, and I have colleagues at EFF who talk about something that I'm completely unfamiliar with, but I'm sure Daphne knows more about than I do, which is the idea that you could adopt a resolution at the state level that it was against public policy to um, uh, do certain things. And then contractually, you could require, you, you know, you could say like, well, your terms of service just can't, just can't be enforceable if they include clauses that block interoperability where there is no user harm. Um, and, and they just become unenforceable as a matter of public policy. So like, there are lots of ways to get there. And I agree that there's a lot of devil in the details. And I really strongly feel having thought about this, and we're working on a big white paper on it right now, that unless it's backstopped by privacy legislation, it's going to be really hard to make it work. Because the most obvious consumer harm or user harm arising from interoperability without oversight is privacy problems. And we don't want companies deciding when when your privacy is at stake and when it's not. We just saw Facebook shut down um, or, or try to shut down uh, Ad Observer by mm -hmm. claiming that by, by watching which ads Facebook is showing and discovering whether or not they're violating their own policies on paid political disinformation, you threaten the privacy of Facebook users. And that and that alone is the reason that they're shutting down Ad Observer and not because Ad Observer like routinely gets used by accountability accountability journalists to like heap scorn and disapprobation <laughs> on Facebook for failing to live up to its own promises. So, you know, we don't want companies to do that and we don't want to like leave it to a judge ultimately, like uh, ultimately a judge will have to make the call, but we don't want the first line of defense to be a judge. What we really want is like when you go and pitch a business to a VC and the VC asks their general counsel, is this going to get shut down? The general counsel looks at the shape of the business, at the plan, and says, oh, no, 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 like you are, you are the only thing that you're doing that looks like uh, it might violate a law is in service to lawful interoperability. And what they don't have to do is guess how a judge might interpret a bunch of common law privacy stuff. And instead, we've got, they've got some bedrock that they can sit on. So, Corey, how does, how does that fit with different users having different preferences and including preferences about privacy. Like suppose that I have um, a really high tolerance for risk, <laughs> like, and I want to migrate my Facebook data, including my friend's data and like mm -hmm. their comments on my baby pictures, you know, whatever, um, to some fly by night company with dubious sure. security that maybe like just barely meets some legislative privacy standards, but my friends wouldn't be willing to trust it. But I unilaterally take all their data with me and I go there. And then Facebook says, hey, we have a right to stop you from doing that because you are harming those other users. You know, they have a different set of preferences and values than than yours. Um, and And so there is harm and we can enforce a CFAA claim or, or a trespass to chattels claim or something. This is why I think we need a federal privacy statute, because the key thing you said in there was like, what if they're not violating the, what if we have a privacy law and they don't violate it? I, I think like if we have a privacy law and they don't violate it, then, you know, it's a bit like if I, um, if we have a privacy law that says, uh, if your kid comes to my birthday party, I can take a birthday picture and put it on Facebook. You have a bunch of normative remedies if you think that's terrible. Like, for the record, I think that's terrible. Uh, but you don't get to sue me. And Facebook doesn't get to sue me. And uh, if, the, if that's a problem, then we need to amend the law. What, what I don't want is... Um, what I don't want is for interoperability to be held hostage to this variability in preference which is impossible to guess at, like, you know, uh, before the fact, and which is going to have all kinds of crazy outliers. I mean, you know, we travel in some circles with some crazy outliers in them, right? Like, I still remember when John Gilmore was, like, fighting his one-person fight to get on an airplane without showing ID, <laughs> right? So, yep. you know, like, we, we are around people who have um, very, very different, like, kind of Six Sigma preferences, and... While, you know, like I'm all for having a very vigorous normative discussion uh, and for there to be all kinds of normative remedies, like saying, you know, I'm never going to talk to Mike again because uh, while he adhered to the letter of the law, he did something really awful. 
uh, and, and, you know, for us to shun Mike or cancel Mike for doing it or whatever. But if he's not violating the law, I don't think Facebook should be able to stop him from doing some, stop him from doing something that is pro-competitive. Yeah, I mean, this puts a lot of pressure on this hypothetical federal privacy law, though, right? Sure like, does. it has to be very, very, very good because nobody ever gets to opt out of it. Um, yeah, that's an – well, yeah, so there's an interesting question is – is uh, that, that phrases it a little differently, right? So if contractually we agree – hmm – yeah, well, I guess then if you can show harm, right? If you can show, uh, I mean, I guess you have to figure out what the damages look like. This is a really interesting way of phrasing it, right? If if we go into a contractual space, right? If we join that thing for elite Silicon Valley weirdos who want to shout about how much they hate journalists and want to destroy their careers. And and we agree that none of us are going to rat the other ones out for our plans to destroy tech journalists. Um, and then one of us does... I mean, that's already a thing that's alive and well now. So what do we think should happen there? In terms of... Like, so if you're, if you're you know, a Latter-day Rockefeller hanging out in your private virtual space and you mm-hmm. say, someone said a bad thing about a suitcase company, we should destroy them. <laughs> and someone else in the chat... Hypothetically. And someone else in the chat records that and puts it on Twitter the next day. What do we think the remedy should be against that person? A, a, a legal remedy or social remedy? Legal remedies, right? Because this is what Daphne's just raised, right? right? We have a contractual arrangement, whether in the form of terms of service or even in like a negotiated contract where these are, you know, negotiated as between equals. We all, we all gather at the battery club or whatever and, and um, you know, uh, over, over uh, expensive molecular gastronomy whiskey, decide what our, um, our, our social contract will be. And we, we all sign our name to it. And then one of us breaks it beyond kicking that person out of the club. What do we think the remedy should be? And what if the thing that they reveal is actually in the public interest, like a conspiracy to fix prices that sits below the level of a, um, uh, of uh, an antitrust violation in the current framework, but is still really uh, shady and not great, and a thing that they're kind of embarrassed by. Where do where do we where do we sit on that? Yeah, I mean, it's such a hard question, and and it's so closely related to the questions that are coming up in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, you know, the case before the Supreme Court sure. today, um, and and the High Q case. Um, you know, the sort of do we want to delegate to a private agreement the ability to set a rule that will then be enforced by, you know, potentially criminal sanctions in the CFEA context? Or if that's not the rule, what is the rule? And is mm-hmm. is the rule going to be based on some fuzzy concept of harm or public interest balancing? And, it, you know, and, it, and yeah. if so, how do you define that? Um so it's so let it's me hard. let me tell you wh- how I got to this right. So I looked at all of the stuff where where we see courts taking actions that block uh, interoperability, and more importantly, like general counsels um, anticipating what courts might do, and they ask these narrow procedural questions, right? Did you violate a patent? Did you violate a copyright? Did you circumvent a TPM? And and you know sometimes there's a little gray area like with with uh, YouTube DL, where it's like, if, is obfuscation a TPM, that kind of thing. But none of those questions get at the public policy questions. And by focusing solely on this, it starts to look very technocratic. It starts to look a lot like the consumer harm standard that, you know, we were bequeathed by Robert Bork in monopoly enforcement. And it's the kind of thing where the public purpose of the rule just never gets a look in. And, and, all we ever talk about in court is whether this claim of this patent is valid, and if so, whether uh, there is an infringement on it in some action. And, you know, say what you will about fair use and the courts. Like, do we regret um, the VCR decision, the Betamax decision, or Wind Gone, or any of those other really, you know, or or um, or the, the Acuff Rose, the Pretty Woman decision, where... It actually did come down to asking questions of public policy that were fact-intensive and difficult, but that ultimately did produce an outcome and a precedent that 
you know, I think all three of us really like and that have been really important to our society's cultural progress. Yeah, I think copyright law is a useful metaphor for for a lot of questions like this, you know, because it provides both rules and standards. You know, it has things like the TEACH Act for academic uses or Section 108 for library uses. But then if you don't do the things that fit the like spelled out thing you're permitted to do under those statutes, then you can instead rely on fair use and make what's effectively a public policy argument about all the balancing considerations in, in the fair use test. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I'm, I, I, I guess the idea is that you, you know, if you have this floor underneath it, in the form of interoperability mandates, then it, you know, it starts to look a little like the best of both worlds that we sometimes talk about when we talk about copyright limitations and exceptions, where we have a bunch of of um, hard limitations and exceptions, where we say, you know, ten seconds of a song is always fair use, five percent of a poem is always fair use, and then we have the ceiling, which is like more than that could be fair use if you satisfy these factors, and you know that that's a thing that I think a lot of us have wished for, and, you know, it's a bit of a merging of the European approach and the American approach. Um, and, and, you know, imagine how far we could go if you had both of those. Yeah. So I'm curious, Mike, you're kind of in interviewer mode, so you keep asking <laughs> questions. But I'm curious how you would sort of situate your protocols, not platforms idea, you know, within what Corey and I have been, been talking about. Is it yet a third thing? Does it sit in between these two things? Like, what are the differences? Um. I, I mean, there are definitely some similarities and some overlap, but I think um, that my focus is much more on um, on convincing the sort of technology side to, to build um, rather than the policy side to change, um, in part because of what the last, you know, 15 minutes of this discussion were and, and that every time... Um, I would go down the path of how do you how do you put in place regulations to get towards what I want? I I hit all all of these stumbling blocks. That's not to say it's it's not impossible to get past them, um, but you know every one of them raises a lot more questions and a lot more challenges. And so a lot of my focus with protocols, not platforms, was you know could I. Um, convince and inspire people to start building those actual protocols and and to rethink you know how it is that they're designing applications and services for the internet these days whereas you know going back 20 30 years ago you know all different things on the internet were built you know via protocols and people would work together and you'd have this RFC process and anyone could could implement the, the protocols in different ways and then you know in the last 15 to, to 10 to 15 years maybe 20 years um, you know we've shifted away from that because of the recognition that if you you know build a proprietary solution and and own it and control it and and all of the data and associated um, stuff with it you could you know create these sort of monopoly rents and profit tremendously from it um, and so, you know, I, I think that we're all generally speaking about the, the same basic concept in terms of, you know, more interoperability, less lock-in, um, more individual control or pushing control to the end users in some form or another. And that could take a lot of different forms um, as opposed to just having sort of the central arbiter who has full control over absolutely everything. Um, and also within that process, creating a level of competition, um, you know, at least at some, some levels of the stack. Um, but, you know, I think the reason that I've focused on talking about protocols and sort of the, the technology side of it is that I'm not enthusiastic about the, any of the regulatory approaches. And I would prefer to see the sort of the, 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 the regulatory and policy aspects, which I, which I agree are important. I, I would love to, to see them naturally become less important as technologists sort of build solutions around what is going on. So can I, I, I here's what I think is incomplete about the technology focus mm -hmm. is that it supposes that the way that one technology supplanted the other, the way that we grew from one to the other was, was by some kind of like, 
you know, miraculous collective action solution, right? Like, you know, Sweden won New Year's, changed from driving on the left to driving on the right. And they had this <laughs> massive squad who went out in the middle of the night and changed all the road signs, right? That is not how we went from Gopher to the web, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone didn't, like, use Gopher to organize International Web Day, right? They just made Gopher part of the web, right? All the browsers added Gopher support. So Gopher was just a web page. And, you know, the way that we moved Usenet onto the web was not by everyone leaving Usenet. It was by porting Usenet to web-based UIs until gradually Usenet melted and left behind the web. And, you know, I, I use Mastodon. I'm, in fact, in the process of having my sysadmins set up my own Mastodon instance. Uh, I like Mastodon an awful lot. But um, the idea that, like, just one day we'll all leave Twitter for Mastodon, as opposed to having a way to use Twitter with Mastodon sure. is, is I think, just incoherent and, or and, unrealistic. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be clear, like, I don't necessarily, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, um, but I, you know, so I'm open to all different ways that this might occur. And, you know, one of the ways that, um, you know, that, that, we've discussed and now like, you know, Twitter is trying to do something on this is, is recognizing that this is an approach that could make sense for Twitter. And so, you know, I am not just talking about something new. I am hoping that the various companies that are already out there begin to move in this direction already. Um, and, you know, and at least in Twitter's case, they are trying to do something, sure. um, you know, what that, what comes of that we'll see. Um, and you know some of some of the the Twitter blue sky plans are just starting to come public now, and I think uh, early next year there'll there'll be a lot more on that. Um, but there is movement in that direction, and so you know the argument that I'm making is not just that we need these brand new things, and and you know Mastodon is interesting, but I don't think Mastodon is necessarily the right approach either. Um, you know I think that as more people experiment with these things and as the benefits of this approach become more and more evident, I am actually hopeful that the other companies, including Facebook, might recognize that there are actually advantages to them embracing it as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm writing a thing right now about this, about Twitter. I'm very excited about it. In fact, when it hit, I was like, I, I went to my wife and said, like, maybe this is, maybe I should go ask them for a job. Like, maybe I should do that because <laughs> I'm very excited about it. I like Twitter a lot. I mean, for all of its problems, I like Twitter a lot. And, uh, and you know, I, I published an article this morning about this philosopher's uh, defense of Twitter as being epistem- epistemically superior to Facebook. I think there's lots of reasons to like Twitter. Um, but, you know, Twitter is like, what is it, 1% the size of Facebook, 10% the size of Facebook? Right? That's why sure. they're doing it, right? It's, yes. it's like it's not temperamental, you know. Um, like, I, you know, as much as I like to dunk on Zuck and as much as he deserves it, he is not an especially evil person. He is just a normal, mediocre person with no breaks <laughs> because because he can do anti-competitive stuff. Right. Right. And and you know, there but for the grace of God go many of us sure. who, in the absence of breaks, would be doing awful things. Um, you know. So the the I, I think that that um, in the absence of some kind of breaks on Facebook, which might be competition law, might be interoperability remedies, might be a mandate or or some or some combination, I think that. Um, uh, Facebook is just going to keep on kind of squeezing Twitter and crushing Twitter and doing things that'll yeah. make it harder and harder for and, Twitter to succeed. And 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 to be clear, like I, I you know, Twitter recognizes this, and, and in fact, I think that part of the inspiration for the Blue Sky Project was the recognition that you know they needed to do something to fight against Facebook, and so I think it is a a competitive move to try and you know, I, 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 and this is you know pure speculation on my part, but I think that they are approaching it as um, this is now about the open web versus Facebook. And if we don't want Facebook to swallow what remains of the open web, we have to play our part and make it more open. Um, And so that is part of the the thinking behind the Blue Sky Project. Um, And that, you know, raises a bunch of, of questions um, but I think that if they can create a, a better solution and you, in theory, 
you know, if you allow for many different implementations rather than just the implementation that that Zuck or Jack Dorsey wants, that maybe you can start to find the sweet spot that more people will, you know, feel more comfortable using this solution rather than Facebook. Um, and while it may not be, you know, the midnight switchover from from, you know, left hand driving to right hand driving, it, you know, you could gradually move you know, from one service to another, because there's more going on and there's a better solution. And the fact that there are all different kinds of things and you have more control and there are new and different features that are better, um, that are appearing much faster that you begin to, you know, lead to the, uh, you know, long, slow death of, of Facebook, maybe not long, slow death, but, but long, slow decline of, of Facebook as the sort of, you know, overarching, um, you know, platform on which people access the internet effectively. It, it was interesting in the congressional hearings this fall to hear Jack Dorsey bring up this algorithmic diversity idea um, yeah. a lot. You know, and <laughs> yes. it, it it felt a little bit like a response to a line that Zuckerberg likes to use about how Facebook spends more on content moderation than Twitter's entire revenues, <laughs> you know? And, and when he says that, I always feel like he's playing to this government interest that Corey's written about beautifully in having a company that's a choke point, you know, having a company that can go out and enforce content and speech rules and have that, cut off information for a huge swath of the internet because that company has such a dominant role. Um, and so having Twitter take this different tack of saying, hey, let's relinquish that control and let's relinquish it not just to one you know, oversight board that we've set up for a handful of decisions, but instead to a bunch of different competitors who will you know, apply very different speech rules um, is, is a fascinating response as far as I'm concerned. I think it's awesome judo. I totally agree. But, you know, the problem is not merely that Facebook is Facebook with all of its problems. It's that it's it's Facebook with all of its problems and they're holding all your friends hostage. And so, you know, the, like I, I did a talk this morning for McGill University for, for Biela Coleman on uh, in response to Zuboff. And the introducer said, um, are you, uh, you know, unlike... Zuboff, he doesn't think that we should worry about behavior modification. He thinks that we should worry about monopoly. And I actually am 100% worried about behavior modification because it is a hell of a behavior modification to make you use Facebook as the only place where you can talk to your friends, <laughs> right? That, that is a, a mass scale, gross effect, far beyond anything that anyone has ever uh, managed to do with big five personality profiling or subliminal messages or any of that other stuff that we worry about from the annals of like junk psycho research that never replicates. And, and so, you know, I, 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 I think that the problem you're going to have with your, with this Twitter, as much as I like this Twitter and I'm excited about this Twitter and want to do it and think they're uniquely suited to do it and wish them all the best and briefly contemplated quitting my job and asking them for a job doing it. <laughs> um, I think the problem they're going to have is that um, all your friends are locked up on, right. on Facebook. And, and, and so, you know, but that, that goes back to the other aspect, which is I, I think that in a, you know, in a good world, the, you know, the more, uh, open protocol-based Twitter would also be able to figure out an, an adversarial way to to access the communications of of Facebook yeah. as well, um, and that's why that's where it gets exciting. Sure, that's, that's the exciting part, right? That's where the that's where and and you know, like we saw with Mint, you know, if we get to the point where there's a bunch of Facebook users who uh, really rely on talking to their Twitter friends mm -hmm. through, through you know, a uh, uh, kind of backdoored interoperability layer and Facebook messes with it, then, you know, we'll do what Mint used to do whenever a bank would block its, uh, its scraping tools. They would just, instead of showing you your bank balance, they would say, like, your bank, uh, <laughs> Bank of America, has blocked this. Right. Um, here is the phone number of the guy who did it. <laughs> Why don't you call him up as a customer and tell him what you think of it? You know, and that, that you know, like, once you can, you know, this is, this is hostage taking, right? But it's sure. the good kind of hostage taking. It's, it's taking... Um, uh, it's taking the company hostage to the users, right? Uh, it's 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 
it's the beneficial version. Yeah, of, of course, you know, the pushback on that is like when you were talking about banks, there's a lot of competition within the banks. When you're talking about Facebook, there's Facebook, right? So, you know, and, and if, if Zuck decides he wants to cut people off, then he's cutting people off and no amount of calls are likely to have that much influence. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's good. But I, I think, you know, here, the issue is that the CFAA remains a, a huge problem. And, and, you know, the 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 Supreme Court case that's going on right now uh, aside, like, you know, I think that that needs to be looked at. And yet there's no talk of that. Everybody's talking about, you know, 230 and antitrust um, and antitrust may play a part in this. You know, I've you know, and Corey, you and I've had this discussion before, you know, I'm not as convinced that antitrust works, though it could work in combination with some of these other things. Um, I would just want to see how and most of the suggestions I've seen so far, I haven't been that impressed with. But to me, it's like CFAA is is the, the key thing to me and nobody's talking about it. Daphne, I, I want to give you a chance to get in here because because we're going. Over <laughs> well, I I want to talk about implementation, and I'm I'm going okay. to say something that might make Corey mad, so that that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am really interested in what it is you do when um, you have all of these competing uh, vendors applying different content moderation rules. Um, and there are kinds of content that most of them are going to want to know about. They're going to want to know if something is a racial slur or if it's bullying or if it's pro-anorexia content or, or whatever. And it's really inefficient for each of them to have to have a staff that can assess that, you know, kind of redundantly assessing the same piece of content over and over again, especially if each of them has to have a Japanese speaker and an Arabic speaker and a Spanish speaker, you know. And, and so... To make this world of competing content moderation worlds or competing discursive paradigms work, um, I think you need to solve this labor problem that's about the labor of content moderation and identifying content. Um, and so far, the, the efforts to, to solve that problem have been things like the GIF-CT database, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, which effectively take the judgment calls of a big platform like Facebook and downstream it to little platforms, you know, by saying this piece of content was held to violate the toss of someone, you know, and the easiest thing for small platforms to do if they find a duplicate of that piece of content is be like, well, I assume it violates our rules too, because I don't have you know, a Chechen speaker or a Kurdish speaker to even check it out. Um, and, and so I think there's a really interesting technical question about whether there is a way to share, um, share information about individual items of content, like, you know, this is in Italian and it is pro-suicide or, you know, what, what, whatever it is that you want to know about it, sh share the information across these competing vendors without turning that into like a monoculture where everybody reaches the same conclusion about whether to take that piece of content down or demote it or have an interstitial or, you know, wh whatever. Um, and, and this is a technical question that people were tackling in the 90s, back when we had legitimately you know, the the real decentralized web, the, the one on websites, um, you know, there were things like PICS and um, uh, ICRA, the Internet Content Ratings Association, that were trying to figure out ways to solve this problem and in a model where their idea was end users would use their browsers to set their content preferences, you know, for how much nudity they wanted to tolerate or, you know, violence, et cetera. Um, and, and so I, I feel like there, there's prior art here um, and there's, there are lots of, I think, small platforms that are motivated to try to solve this even for their own purposes. But there's just a huge risk that if you get into the world of like having a hash of a particular video and then saying if it's good or bad or if it is extremist or not or, you know, whatever, um, you get into this scary world of um, everybody taking down the same thing or smaller platforms not having the resources to assess whether something is legitimate in context, or, you know, et cetera. Um, and so I, I think we have a big important question or discussion to have about the technical implementation um, of making distributed content at moderations at scale mm -hmm. affordable. Hmm. 
Are you mad, Corey? <laughs> I, I'm not mad. I'm trying to think of where I stand on that. I mean, so I guess I want to go back to what Mike was saying about, uh, and maybe this will get at this a little, what Mike was saying about um, about uh, technology instead of antitrust and so on. And and I want to take it all the way back to the beginning when, when I think it was Mike, but Daphne, maybe you said, like, you mean you want a defense against all claims under all laws? And, and the reason for that is Oracle v. Google. It's that we have seen that when firms have excess rents uh, from monopolies and to when they can also um, solve collective action problems about how to deploy that rent, either because the industry is so concentrated that they can all agree on a course of action or because one firm has so much money that they can just deploy a lot of capital in service to a, a bit of policy entrepreneurship, that they can conjure out of whole cloth new doctrines uh, that are um, anti-competitive, right? And so that would be stuff like Facebook expanding CFAA with the um, uh, Power Ventures case. And, you know, when, when you look at a lot of the activism around nerfing CDA 230, I think it's coming from other sectors that are themselves quite monopolized and that are taking advantage of this as well. And so we're seeing something that starts to look a lot like um, the uh, uh, fights uh, in Europe last year over the copyright directive, where, you know, the, the way that the, that the press and many of the partisans framed it is you had to pick a giant, mm. right? You were either on the side of, of Google and Facebook triumphing over the wicked content monopolies, or you wanted the entertainment companies to put big tech in their place. But then the theory for how that made life better for the rest of us is like maybe some crumbs would shake loose from their plate and land on ours. Uh, and, you know, I, I had this in, in a really vivid way when I called up the National Union of Journalists in the UK that I'm a member of and asked them why they were endorsing the copyright directive. And they were like, well, our, our job is to defend the livelihood of journalists. And, you know, if newspapers aren't making money, journalists won't make money. And that's certainly true. But if newspapers are making money, journalists won't make money either unless there's some way to make the, the, the newspapers pay the journalists. <laughs> and, you know, the less competitive they are, the less reason there is for them to pay the journalists, right? So, um, you know, if you, if you are worried about CDA 230, if you're worried about the CFAA, if you're worried about all these other things, you kind of got to ask yourself, like, where they came from. Right. Because because, you know, clearly when Ronald Reagan was having a freak out about war games and, and signing the CFAA, he was not thinking about Facebook and Power Ventures. Those doctrines were crafted at an enormous expense through, you know, um, uh, funding uh, certain kinds of legal research, through funding certain kinds of think tanks, through, uh, you know, going through very expensive litigation, um, you know, that that. We've seen how policy can develop outside of legislatures through the application of money in the form of power, rather, in the form of money. And that's why I think monopolies like reducing monopolistic concentration is like a necessary precondition for solving all of these problems. And so, Daphne, to come to your content moderation question, um, you know, I, I, I think that like there are multiple uh, uh confounding issues here so one is is the content illegal and is it illegal where the company is and if both of those things are true then the company has a really urgent need to to find out what is in that content wrapper and you know i'm a i'm a member of a mastodon instance that i signed up to because it's run by la quadrature du net who are kind of a french civil liberties organization, tech liberties organization. And I was feeling really good about it until one day they announced that they would no longer allow anyone to talk Spanish on it because <laughs> they couldn't moderate Spanish content and find out if they're violating European law. So certainly like I appreciate where what what you're saying, right? That this is like this is a major issue, but it also feels like a lot of our problems with addressing it have to do with distortions in policy that are wrought by the monopolies. And mm -hmm. that if the only way we can solve this is by perpetuating the monopolies, by, by, you know, being dependent on Facebook to spend more than Twitter's annual revenues to uh, hire content moderators to tell you whether something in Urdu is hate speech, uh, then, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think I have two two responses to to Daphne's question, which is which is good and important to to think about. Um, and and one is that 
and there's an interesting struggle, which you didn't mention, but is playing out in the background behind what you were saying, which is that um, even as you expressed concern about, you know, whether or not all platforms were just, you know, sort of all agree to take down this content because some organization, um, you know, decided that it was problematic. You have, there are a lot of people in the world who want that to be the case, right? Um, and will argue for that. And so I think you're right to raise that and be concerned, but um, you express that as if that was, you know, undeniably bad and, and or problematic. Um, and there are people who would disagree with that. And I, 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 I'm on your side on this, but I think it, it would need to be addressed because there will be some people, you know, even like in talking about the protocols, not platforms approach, I have people who say, but under your system, certain bad content will remain up. And the answer is yes. You know, the question is how, how much of an impact does it have to how wide does it spread? Um, and they will sort of dismiss the idea out of hand. Um, the other separate point that I wanted to raise is that I think if you have one of these systems, you know, whether it is the adversarial interoperability or the magic APIs or the, the protocols, um, it also does allow for much more experimentation uh, in terms of how the content moderation is handled. And there is a sort of implicit assumption built into, into the question that, you know, there has to be this sort of team of people who are making the decisions. And I think that's always going to be a part of it, but it need not be, you know, the, the most common way that it, that it's done. And we have, you know, certain other models that we already know about, you know, the way Wikipedia handles content moderation, the way Reddit handles content moderation. Um, and, you know, if given the chance, I think that there are other alternative models that will show up as well. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking, I've been talking to a few different people who are, who are like, you know, trying to come up with alternative models for, for content moderation. And there was one that was, was interesting. And this is not, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but they were talking about, you know, if you had a system where effectively, you know, along with each piece of content, you are putting up, you are effectively uh, declaring what kind of content it is. Um, you know, whether it's, it, you know, does it have any nudity? Does it have any offensive speech or, or, or whatnot? Um, and people could call you on it if they think that you have claimed that there is, there's like no offensive speech in here. And that subjects you to then a moderation review. Um, you could do some really interesting and different things and have a very different approach to content moderation, which is not just, you know, a giant team, uh, outsourced contractors overseas, whatever it is, um, some big call center, um, just reviewing directly content based on, um, you know, based on a centralized set of rules. Um, you could create all different kinds of things and some of them perhaps could be more interesting and more effective than, than that model. Yeah, I, I like the idea of, to your second point, I, I like the idea of um, decentralizing the work both on, you know, the consumer end of what content mm -hmm. do I want to receive and on the creator end of, you know, how do I describe or attach metadata to this right. this content that I'm that I'm uploading. I mean, what one of the 90s lessons of, of ICRA, uh, which was trying to get webmasters to do exactly that was they had a you know, a checklist webmasters were supposed to fill out. And it was like, uh, check this box if there is real cruelty right. to animals. Check this <laughs> box for cartoon cruelty to animals. And like, nobody did it. You know, right. like people people so, are very lazy. Yeah. Which is so part of why I focus on this no, as a, a labor question. No, and, and I think that's a good point. And that, that this is actually, you know, this was part of the discussion I had with the person who sort of raised this idea to me, which was their version was, was sort of that version where you would have to check off all the different things. And, and my thought, and again, like this, this is, you know, I'm still sort of thinking this through, but I thought it was, there was an interesting ideas is that if the default is that effectively everything is checked off, that this, that this has none of this giant list. Um, but in order to post certain things, you would have to uncheck, like if this has something that, you know, may trip somebody's concerns somewhere, you would have to then sort of 
proactively say like this is you know I, I am saying that this content meets this threshold um, it it changes the 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 sort of incentive structure somewhat there there are ways mm -hmm. to do it you know I, I, again like we, we're starting to get yeah. down into the weeds of how yeah. that would all work but I, I recognize there are problems of like actually expecting people to do stuff <laughs> when they just want to dash off like you know their latest whatever um, I, I but I I think that like the problem with the semantic web is not merely that it is complicated it's that people have totally legitimate reasons for disagreeing about sure. what label should be applied to stuff right. And, and, uh, and but you know, again, I don't think that's surmountable. Uh, yeah. Well, so well, so I'm going to keep coming back to this <laughs> '90s stuff. Like the way what they came up with to surmount it is, we're going to ask the webmasters to self-rate, and then every user can say, on top of that, I want to have either a blacklist or a whitelist, or you right. know, set of them from third-party sources I trust. So you know, in addition, I want the Girl Scouts of America whitelist, or you know, the League of Women Voters, or the right. you know, ESPN, yeah. whatever. So you know, this kind of gets. I think to Mike's point about giving different roles to different players in the ecosystem. And if one of them falls down, it, you know, fails over to one of the other ones doing something. I, I mean, so, you know, when we think about all the, the really significant ones that people have giant disagreements about, you know, I remember when I was on Boing Boing, the, um, one of the content moderation companies that did this for libraries and stuff, downranked us for nudity because we had a picture of the David on one of 10,000 pages, <laughs> right? And, you know, we call Wait, that that's, the... that's so appropriate, given that you ran my post about a nude Rodin sculpture. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, and this guy was a piece of work. You know, he was on Usenet. He'd been on, he was like an old internet hand because everyone who was in a position in those days came out of that. And his thing on Usenet, his search, his post history was all diaper fetish stuff. <laughs> and, you know, it was interesting because his like, which, you know, fine, right? Anything two consenting, two or sure. more consenting adults, one consenting adult does. That is fine with me. The point being that this was a guy who was okay to get his jollies, but didn't want anyone else to live in that unregulated space. Because, you know, Usenet did, did not have a rating system on the lines that that he was imposing on the web and it was like the you know a, a bit like the debate we hear now about the wild and woolly web that uh we had our time in which individuals put up websites and that time is over and now the time is where you make a web page on facebook and hope that you never upset their moderator so they take it away from you i'd kind of like to come back to mike's first point if that's okay Sure, sure. Um, so you, you were talking about how lots of people do want every platform to take down the same stuff or to take down, you know, stuff that we all agree is bad. And, and I think the response to that is like, that's what laws are for. You know, if there's mm -hmm. actually societal agreement that something is bad and bad in every context and should come down, like that's when you use a law to prohibit it. Um, but for the stuff that we're talking about that is legally protected and there are reasons why you know we want it to be available in some circumstances um you know th then you are already in a space where you want there to be different rules in different places for for the same speech um but but for the stuff that's actually illegal i think this is another complicated implementation question for you know any of of the variants on the protocols not platforms or magic apis or etc because presumably if it's you know let's make it facebook again sitting on a bunch of content and they know that it's illegal they have to take it out of the like the hub portion mm -hmm. of the service so that none of the competitors out on the spokes even have an opportunity to display it or rank it or, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's relatively straightforward if you're thinking about just one country. But then once you're in a world where different content is legal and illegal in different countries, you know, then what happens? Then is Facebook labeling a post um, and saying, you know, this post is known to be illegal in Germany, and that's a piece of the metadata that gets transmitted. And, the, you know, it, it gets very logistically complex. So it may be that the reason that you can't get there from here is that the thing that is held constant in your example is that Facebook remains the hub, right? If you imagine a far more decentralized internet, um, you know, there's certainly no one came down off a mountain with two stone tablets and said, all people shall communicate through one company, right, in all countries. 
uh, there is a there is a solution to immunizing Facebook from law in Germany, which is for Facebook to have no commercial presence in Germany. And if the logistical challenge of maintaining legal compliance in multiple jurisdictions uh, exceeds the uh, you know the viability of a firm in the absence of monopoly rents, then the answer is to have lots of different firms providing lots of different services that are responsive to local needs, including local legal needs, that federate in some way, and that control their gateways in the way that um, we already see this being done in lots of other contexts, where, you know, if you're a bookstore in Germany and you ordered a copy of Mein Kampf in German from America when it was illegal to sell Mein Kampf in Germany in German, but it was legal in America and there were German editions circulating in America. That's a matter between the bookseller, the customs authority, the person who buys the book. Uh, and it's not really a problem of the American who sends the book to them, right? It's that, that, and so, you know, Germany then has to find an equilibrium between the rules it wants to impose and the enforcement, uh, the, the realpolitik of the enforcement of those rules, um, as opposed to uh, trying to come up with a single set of rules that works for everyone. I mean, I think this is just a microcosm of the idea that, like, not only is Mark Zuckerberg not suited to be, like, the god emperor of 2.6 billion people's lives, but no one is. Fair enough. <laughs> I, wanna, I want to explain why we call it competitive compatibility before we get any further, because I keep, I keep remembering and then forgetting. Okay, go for um, it. It's because Germans can't say adversarial interoperability. <laughs> it's, it's like listening to a German say the word squirrel. It's it is amazing, and so um, all of our all of our most staunch allies are are Germans and Austrians on this stuff. You know, Julia Rita and Christoph Schmon at EFF and so on. And we we took mercy on them. <laughs> it's also because it was just too much of a mouthful and doesn't abbreviate. But the but but competitive compatibilities. One of its major fitness factors is Germans can say it without any problems. Wait, adversarial adversarial interoperability is unpronounceable. It does abbreviate abbreviate it abbreviates to AI, which seems like its own yeah, problem. That's the reason. <laughs> yes, it has a like and and you or you get adv uh, interop right, which is just like it's just. It's terrible and unwieldy and bulky. Very Soviet. I, I yeah, and I lament uh, losing the word adversarial because right. it is important, right? Because it's not merely about competition, uh, because I guess most competition is adversarial. But like getting at the point that you don't have the right to decide how your competitors act is really important. You know, my first day at EFF, uh, even before I was actually working for EFF, I flew down. Because they said, oh, your start day is Monday, but we need you today. And I flew down with Session and Fred von Lohmann to L.A., to LAX, to the Four Point Sheraton, for the first meeting of the Broadcast Protection Discussion Group, mm. which was creating the broadcast flag, which is a mandate on the designs of all general purpose PCs. And the guy from – there were different power blocks, like very explicitly. There was CE and IT and Hollywood and so on. The guy from the entertainment side, he said, our goal here in his, in his plenary keynote – Right. Our goal here is to create a polite marketplace. <laughs> right. Yikes. And, you know, adversarial interoperability is about it's it's about being impolite. Yeah. It's about knowing that that the person you are interoperating with hates the fact that you're there and doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually I really like the, the phrasing of adversarial interoperability, mainly for the adversarial part. Um, but no one can pronounce it. No one can pronounce it. It is an it is an issue. Um, so, I think we could continue to talk about this for a very long time, uh, and perhaps we should have round two at some other point. But I sometimes question the willingness of listeners to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say after. after oh God, save me for three hour podcasts. <laughs> Uh, now that we've hit a little bit over the hour mark. Um, yeah. and so I, I, and, and, and as both of you know, I very much enjoy talking about these things with you and thinking through all of these issues and, and, uh, you know, not that I think the person who was complaining on Twitter will sit through and listen to this whole thing, but, but, you know, part of the reason why I keep talking about this is because I do think that, that all of these approaches do have really big challenges. And I don't think that, that. I or anyone has the answers, you know, I've spent, you know, the past year plus since, since my 
protocols, not platforms paper came out, like talking people down from it, <laughs> explaining to them why as much as I, I want to see it in action, I don't have all the answers. And I still think that it creates a lot of problems as well. I just, you know, from what I've seen, I think it's an approach that's better than, than other stuff, but that's, that's speculation as well. And so, and so all of this has challenges. Every one of these approaches has challenges, but so does the system that we have today. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, the only way we're going to get to a better solution is to start thinking, you know, broadly and, and to, to try and understand what these challenges are and, and think through the different creative ways to solve it. So, um, so, you know, definitely want to thank both of you for, for taking the time and, and running through this thought exercise. Thank you for having us. Sure. Yeah, I mean, anytime I can discuss this with someone who isn't one of my two cellmates here in Los Angeles, <laughs> my wife and daughter, who are so sick of hearing me talk about it, is a good day. Yeah. So thank you. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as I said, I think this is not a topic that's going away anytime soon. Uh, and I'm sure that there will be more to, to talk about. So, you know, maybe we'll start to make this a series and every so often get the three of us back on, on the microphones and and uh and and talk through all of this and maybe maybe one day in the not too distant future we could actually get together in person but uh, <gasps> that is not not i don't know not for... as we as we started this my wife sent me a link to our new lockdown order here in los angeles <laughs> yes. that day is a long way away <laughs> yes 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 it will be a a, a long time but uh again <laughs> uh thanks to both of you for taking the time and for having a very interesting and very very thought-provoking discussion uh and uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well uh, and we'll be back next week with uh, something else, something less interesting. This is this is the best one. <laughs> this is the most Excelsior. interesting. Excelsior! <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right, thanks, guys. Bye, you guys. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.